and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million dharmas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of Tathagata's words. Well, Mary, thank you so much for inviting me to uh, co-lead this sewing this, uh, sashim. Sashim means, as you know, gathering of the heart-mind, and we're doing it around sewing. It's a really strange thing that we do, so that we can do another strange thing, which is put, put our robes on our heads first thing in the morning and do the rope chant, and that's the, that's the very first utterance that we have as a sangha together is the rope chant. Um, we did it this morning and uh, it's a great privilege and honor to come and uh, help clear water, uh, be a part of that process, this beautiful but strange and rich uh, tradition. So uh, just a little bit of background about me. I came to San Francisco Zen Center in 2001, and I had just started a Vipassana practice, uh, which I much preferred, Vipassana, by way of Spirit Rock, long-time uh, teacher there. And, you know, that they had decided, Sylvia Borstein and Jack Cornfield and several others, sort of, they trained in Southeast Asia in the 70s, and thought that coming to the United States, Americans want, want all the robes and the bells and, and rituals. So they put that aside and they were right. Uh, it became very popular, Theravadan Buddhism, and, and mostly in the, in the form of Vipassana. And I was coming to San Francisco Zen Center because they had a, a meditation and recovery meeting. And, I had recently gotten into recovery around for alcoholism and I was a terrible drug addict. There's a step in the 12 steps that asks you to make contact with a higher power. For me, as a good old Marxist and atheist, um, uh, I was looking for something else, as many people are, and so I was attracted to Buddhism. And um, uh, I, I didn't like all the robes. I really preferred the spirit rock way of not having any bells and whistles. But I was coming this one day out of the week, uh, despite my Vipassana practice, to the meditation and recovery meeting. And as you all know, you need to be careful because Zen will sneak up on you. And slowly, over a period of about three or four years, I started coming to the Wednesday night Dharma talks and the Saturday Dharma talks, and then I thought, well, this class looks okay, I'll take a class. And before I knew it, I was in a practice period, and that practice period was led by Senke Blanche Hartman Moshi, um, who Mary has mentioned. And uh, she had been abbess and no longer was abbess, but, but was sort of standing a basal person uh, for um, the abbot who was at Tassahara at the time. And so this first practice period really blew me away um, because Blanche led it and uh, Christina Lenhair was Tanto. Tanto means head of practice, so you're kind of 
big week, um, and you're looking after everyone and making sure that the uh, abbot or abbess's idea of the temple, the monastery, the practice period is executed properly, and you're looking after people in a very deep way. And that was Christina Lenhair. And then the Chousseau was Janet Draca, a student of, of Blanche's. It was very impressive to me because I already knew San Francisco Zen Center to be a very patriarchal, male-dominated, and not in a good way, institution. And so to be in this practice period that was led all by women uh, was very inspiring to me. And soon after that, I went ahead and decided to get a teacher. Go ahead, get a teacher. Let's see what happens. So, so I did, and I ended up with Michael Wenger. And within a year, he asked me to ask if, if I wanted to receive the precepts. And um, I, I said that I did. It was clear by that stage that I pretty much had given up my Vipassana practice and had come over to the dark side. <laughs> um, and uh, so he sent me soon after, you know, we studied for a while and, and he sent me soon after to Blanche for, uh, to sell my Rapsu. And I was terrified, uh, in part because I already knew Blanche. And she, at that time, uh, to someone in my position, appeared as a very stern, elevated Zen master. And uh, so I was very intimidated to go to sewing class. But we seemed to get along very well, understanding both of us, our positions. Uh, and before I had finished my Rakazu, she asked me to, to train to be a sewing teacher. She was always training people. And um, she recognized me as someone who I have always since I was 12 years old, done manual labor of some kind, um, and a very working class background. And um, that was, uh, I think, an entryway into Blanche's heart right there. And she saw that I was capable with my hands. I'm trained as a, as a fine artist, formerly as a fine artist. And um, I've always worked with my hands and continue to do so right now for just a few more months. So that started in 2004 and, and Blanche trained me until she died. Uh, she trained me for over, over 10 years, uh, along with a couple of other people. Christine Palmer was uh, the other person and we sort of were buddies in, in that a group of people that Blanche trained uh, very closely for a very long time. And I, I just, early on, I saw how fortunate I was to be able to work with Blanche and that she was willing to impart to me um, this beautiful, wacky practice. To me, uh, I grew up in London and uh, being a member of the working class, in England, you're either like really devoted to royalty and aristocracy and ceremony, uh, or, or you're radically opposed to it. And I'm from the, I was from the latter group. To me, all of the rituals and ceremony of uh, Zen Buddhism, it, it was it reminded me of the aristocracy in in Britain, and to me that meant oppression 
and um, power and control. And so it was a very bad thing. But the, the, the thing about being in recovery, in 12-step recovery, is 12-step recovery is sort of starting from the very bottom. They talk about hitting, you need to hit a bottom. And uh, what that was for me was a place of, of just profound despair. And so this is what it is that I brought into my Zen practice is uh, an openness to the possibility of having some order in my life. And slowly, that's what it is that ceremony became for me. I was able to, through despair, give up this idea that ceremony and ritual, what we call form in Zen, is somehow oppressive. Um, or somehow is uh, preventing me from being my, you know, sacred individual self, which is strong in, in, in England where I grew up, but even stronger here. It's actually written here, individualism into our, our national documents. Um, and um, so it's held up as a uh, um, almost sacred uh, element of, of how it is that we are. And the idea of form is to actually, to, in Zen Buddhism, is to, to join in the Sangha, to become a part of the Sangha. And that's what sewing Buddha's robe um, is and uh, became for me. Um, so, uh, what uh, Blanche um, was uh, a uh, an ardent feminist, to say the very least, to put it mildly. Um, she was uh, aware of um, oppression and how it is that it um, uh, affected many groups, and, and most of her senior students were people from oppressed groups, and um, so she was. Um, she was just very much aware of, of that, that side of, of the world and how it is that, that, that it's that oppression that brought many people um, to, uh, to Buddhism, uh, that, that, it was, that that was the source of, of their uh, suffering, that they came to Buddhism to have treated. And so that was woven into her teaching um, of uh, uh, sewing Buddha's robe, um, she, she was not interested in, in sewing at all. She, as a feminist, was she was trained as uh, a chemist, I believe, and, and she was a mechanic. She loved working on cars. And so, uh, but, but when she heard that there was a, a female Roshi coming to San Francisco Zen Center, uh, Yoshida Roshi, she um, uh, was very impressed. It was a woman, Roshi, Japanese Roshi, coming to speak at San Francisco Zen Center. And she was a little disappointed that what she spoke about, what Ishida Roshi spoke about, was sewing. But nonetheless, she was very impressed. And so that opened her heart a little bit. And um, a few years later, when Ishida Roshi couldn't come anymore to the United States, she sent uh, a student of hers named um, uh, Joshin-san, uh, Joshin-sensei would call her, uh, and she was um, 
the person who ended up training uh, Blanche in selling. And Blanche would explain the story of how it is that she would see the light on in the sewing area and would know that the Joshin sensei was, was in there sewing. And the next day came to her and said, you need to get sleep, you're staying up too late. And Joshin sensei, who didn't speak any English, took, her, took Blanche over to a suitcase where she had several unfinished robes. And she made it clear these robes need to be finished. That once a robe is started, it must be finished. And so Blanche would tell that story as a way of showing how she was introduced to Joshin-san's devotion to sewing Buddha's robe. This was, for Blanche, a, a, a clearly a very um, deep treatment for oppression, for suffering, for what I found as someone who was coming from a 12-step, from the chaos of addiction, bringing about some kind of order and some kind of groundedness in my life, and, and, and that was what Blanche told me as far as an application of devotion was concerned. So, what is this weird thing that we do, this rope we put on our heads first thing in the morning? We were talking in our first sewing class this morning about why the Buddha asked us to have a rope. Us to to make it and wear a robe, and it's as a banner to the world that we are engaged as students of the drama, and it's an invitation. Uh, so it's an act of sangha. It's an invitation for people to come towards us, and it's an invitation for us to go towards others and to engage in the drama, to talk about the drama. It's based on the rice field. Ananda, uh, our first Buddhist clothing designer, our first and only clothing designer, because <laughs> the Buddha asked Ananda, his attendant, to please come up with a design. And they were standing by a rice paddy, and the rice is what it is that we eat so that we can be sustained and then be comfortable enough to have extra time so that we can study the Dharma. And sometimes our individual stitches are referred to as rice grains um, that we have on here. But the rakasu is made from five joes or rows. My okesa and Mary's okesa are, are made of seven joes. And then Mary has a nine joe uh, that is worn during jukai and when. Uh, the Dharma is expounded, and uh, each one of those those rows is made up of uh, on the rakasu one short piece and one long piece, and on the cases one short piece and two long pieces, and the long pieces are the wisdom pieces, which is the sexy thing that we all come to Buddhism for. We want to we want to banish all ignorance and get lots of wisdom, be wise. The short pieces are the ignorance or delusion pieces. And we actually sew them together. We sew the wisdom to the delusion and the ignorance. Because 
in our understanding of awakening in Zen Buddhism, we're not trying to go up on the mountain on our own and become only wise. That is the Theravada way. We're joining together with all beings and we're staying in the world of delusion. We're staying here until all beings together can awaken. And so we are including delusion and ignorance in our picture of what awakening is. And that's a very important part of how it is that we uh, make these robes right here that we put on every day. When you get an okay, you get a little more wisdom because there's two long wisdom patches right there. And uh, Blanche had a 21 Joe that was made for her by the whole country, all the sewing teachers and sewing students around the country and put together by Yuko Okamura, Shohaku Okamura's wife. And that 21 Joe, I believe, has four wisdom panels to the one delusion. And all of the uh, top panels, whether they're delusion or wisdom panels, they go over the ones underneath. And the middle row goes over the side rows, and the side rows go over the, the rows on the edge. And in this way, just like water flows down through uh, in pathways and waters the rice field in the rice paddy because rice paddies are always on a slight incline. Just like water flows down and out through the, uh, the little canals on the rice paddy, we say the Dharma flows down and out on our Ocasis and, and Raksus. And Blanche used to sing, which was very naughty. In the sewing room, when she was telling the story, every the, there's a song which I'm not going to sing for you, but uh, it's everybody loves you when you're down and out, and so she nobody loves you. Nobody loves you. Nobody loves you when you're down and out. Thank you, Mary. Cynthia Gary. Yeah. Nobody loves you when you're down and out. She would after she would sing that after explaining about the down and out of uh, the. Um, the Dharma on our, on our robes. So that's a little bit about the construction of the rope. Where is that clock? Oh, there it is right there. Okay. And uh, oh, one time for yeah. So that's a little bit about the symbolic meaning. Um, although Mel Hartman, uh, Mary's teacher, didn't like us saying that the rope was symbolic. He said that the robe actually is Buddha's robe. It's not symbolic. It's not your robe. It's not an imitation robe. It's actually Buddha's robe, which I had to spend a long time on that column to be able to uh, actually believe it, which I do fully now. This is actually Buddha's robe. But what's it made up of? It's made up of fabric, you know. And we're upstairs choosing silk thread, which I think probably most of you know, the silkworm has to be killed in order the the, the silk, um, what is it called? The, the cocoon has to be boiled in order to uh, harvest the silk so that we can have silk thread. And since at least the 8th century, uh, there's been a debate about whether or not we should be using silk thread 
and uh, cotton was favored for a really long time. Now we know that cotton also is not such a great thing, that workers are exploited and the, the land is exploited, sometimes in terrible ways. We have uh, a horrible legacy in this country around cotton industry uh, and its connection with slavery. All of these things have to be brought into our making of these ropes because we say that for us awakening is being fully and completely present with what it is that you're doing. And so it's very important for us when thinking about how it is that we attach the delusion to the wisdom that we bring all of this and we're able to maintain an upright posture with a lot of bad news while we're making this rope. And it's in that way that we sober this rope and uh, take refuge with each stitch. Namukie Butsu was what we were saying until recently uh, with each stitch. And now we were talking about it this morning uh, in our first sewing class. We say Namukie Butsu for one stitch, Namukie Ho for the next one, and Namukie So. Namukie Butsu means I take refuge in Buddha. Namukie Ho, I take refuge in Dharma, and Namukie So, I take refuge in Sangha. And Blanche was always very, uh, um, it was very important to her to point out that, that you can say it in any language you want, but she liked us to say it in Japanese because the kie part means I plunge into refuge with the Buddha without any resistance, without any regret. And it kind of reminded me of that, that, that psychological little sort of exercise that was done where you had someone standing behind you and you, you fold your arms and you fall back into their arms. And in this way, you learn about trust. And Blanche said to me that even if you have never had someone who you totally completely trusted in your life, which was true for me at that time, uh, you can at least imagine what would that be like to have someone or something that you completely and utterly trusted in your life and to try and make contact with that with each stitch as far as what the Buddha means to you personally. Sometimes for me it's a living being, sometimes it's Buddha nature. What the Dharma means to you, the teachings, that's a little easier because I know that I'm impressed by the teachings and I've read them and loved them. And what the Sangha means to you, what does it mean for you to completely and utterly trust a community of beings who are your fellow practitioners? What does that mean? What does Sangha mean to you? Because in the end, for us as Zen practitioners, Sangha needs to be everyone, all beings. And that's a little difficult for many of us in the beginning, but this is something that you practice with which is why we do this practice. I've never counted the stitches that there are in Araksu. I'm told by people who I suspect are capable of actually counting the stitches in Araksu. There's around 1,400. And in our case, uh, it depends. If you're short, like I am, 
It's much less than if you're tall like Paul Haller is. Uh, he's a former abbot who's very tall. But he's narrower than I am, so uh, there might be similar number of stitches. But to do this, to actually really try to make contact with that sense of complete and utter trust with each stitch that you're making is what it is that, in my experience, brings me fully into the devotion that Blanche was teaching. And a devotion which is a a grounded, joyous place to live in. And I've made several cases for people who've been so them and made my own okasa and now probably I've probably made ten rakasus for myself and others. And still it's not complete and always that I'm living in that devotion. But it's definitely a lot more consistent than it was when I first started and was terrified and went to sewing class. So try, if you can, to not waste this life and not waste each stitch by thinking about something else or talking about or worrying about how perfect or imperfect your stitch is. Perfectionism is something that is a great curse for us in our American culture, which was founded on Puritanism. And it's really a, a source of, it's held up as a, as a virtue, perfectionism, but it's actually, in my experience, a vehicle for shame. So try to really make contact with that deep and beautiful uh, sense of having no regret in, in having faith and trust in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, because you might not have a chance to do this again in your life in a repetitive way. And there's now scientific uh, knowledge that claim that uh, shows that repetitive, positive uh, thought patterns can actually change the, uh, the fabric of the brain. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I think it sounds pretty good. So I'm going to leave it right there because uh, I want to have some time for questions, which it looks like there's five minutes. So let's have questions, comments, or you can contest anything I've said as well. I don't think this is contesting, but it's, uh, it challenged me when you said that uh, it's that the Rakasu is, is a flag of um, in the Dharma because um, in, my, in my practice, I only wear it among Zen Buddhist centers and among Zen Buddhist, Buddhist folks. Um, so, of course, if there's somebody brand new um, here who has questions and it's flagged that they can come to come to me, but otherwise, I don't think of it that way. So I'd like you to expand on that a little, if you could. Well, I would like you to think about it a little bit yeah, more. Yeah. Uh, because as an addict and an alcoholic in recovery, I've not had any drugs or alcohol for 24 years now. I know that isolation is central to the condition of being an addict. And so when you're in 12-step recovery, you have to really study isolation and your own isolation as you're forced in 12-step work to be part of fellowship. You're forced to socialize. And it's very ugly in the beginning. Uh, no one wants to do it. 
but you realize that, that that is the central pillar of the diseased way of being is isolation and so you really learn about it and as you're doing so i see that uh it's a part of the whole culture and you know most people are not addicts or alcoholics but we do seem to all be isolated in some kind of way and it trains us in, in ways that are, are opposite to what Buddhism is training us to do, which is to be in Sangha. And so these hesitations that we have, uh, which I still have around joining together with other people in different ways, those are for me to look at and to see what's going on right there and what, what is my condition, what is my relationship with others. You know, I've been a priest now for six years, um, which some would say is not very long at all, but I still have difficulty uh, connecting with others in ways that I know are healthy. So you've already spoken about how when you're wearing your rakasu here and there's new people here, they know to come to talk to you. So that's what it is that Buddha intended. Now, whether or not you want to wear your rakasu out in the world, that's some people do. And I have a couple of times in the last uh, year or so done that. And um, it's a different relationship with the robe. So this is a koan for us. It's very, very important. You know, when I said about uh, individualism, Perfectionism. I know we're connected to like a sort of run out of time there, but um, perfectionism and individualism are really deeply connected. And I'm really suspicious of perfectionism when it's presented as, as uh, a high standard. I think actually it's a lot more about separating people. And so. Um, and Joshin-san and Yoshida Roshi actually were very different. And, uh, Joshin-san, to Joshin-san, each stitch was sacred and shouldn't be taken out unless there's a structural problem. It should not be taken out. It should be left in. Yoshida Roshi wanted the stitches to look a certain way and you had to practice for a really long time before you could start sewing. And if you went astray in one of your lines, she would make you take them out. And apparently some of Tomoe Katagiri's uh, students, sort of it was Tomoe Katagiri and Blanche were the two main big sewing teachers of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, early 2000s. And uh, Tomoe's students make you take, take stitches out if they're not looking at a certain way. So there's an aesthetic question and a structural question. And if it's aesthetic, if someone wants to take stitches out because they don't like them, then um, that's, uh, that's, that's something I want them to answer for themselves. Yeah. I find it really useful that we're talking about the devotion in the sewing and not wasting that time and expressing that devotion in each stitch. And then that made me realize that like, I came into this thing in three days. Back in Portland, where it's so on my own, so I better so fast. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really helpful to hear that. 
Just wrote that down. Yeah, yeah we're trained. Yes. Uh-huh. The Buddha said, my teaching goes against the stream. And the stream for us in 21st century United States is as individuals and in competition with others and competing to produce, to finish, to end, to get on to the next thing so that we can consume that. So there's an urgency to do them well, but to finish them as efficiently as possible. So that's been a big struggle for me in this practice to uh, not get to the end of something just for the sake of getting to the end of it. So, I mean, I think you kind of already answered this indirectly, but I was just really um, kind of stunned to hear perfectionism being a vehicle for shame, because that's huge. That's a big word. So I don't know if you have any more to say about that, but it's something I'm thinking about. Yeah, I understand it's painful. It's painful for me because I'm a perfectionist. Yeah. I'm a perfectionist. And, uh, you know, when I first got into recovery, uh, there was a guy, an old timer, who would talk about going down to 6th Street in San Francisco, which is a place which is like sort of the Bowery is in New York, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of alcoholics and people dying on the street, basically alcoholics and drug addicts. And, and he would say, here is a street filled with perfectionists. <laughs> and you know, what he meant was that, uh, and it's true of alcoholics and drug addicts, that they are perfectionists. And uh, what, what it means is that you never are able to reach what it is that you're trying to reach. And so you're constantly feeling ashamed. And so that's what it is that I mean. I realize in, in being now a sewing teacher for you know, 15 years now, over 15 years, I, it, it's such a struggle for people who come into, who are not addicts and alcoholics, but who are just simply conditioned in our culture. And it, it's just such a struggle for people and such a great vehicle for applying the, the treatment of Buddhism and the Dharma to Sangha and the joining together in a loving, joyful way of disparate and separated human beings. It's a radical thing to say and it's a it's a heavy thing to say and it's a beautiful process to watch people let go of their perfectionism. Um, let go of the need to be better than, let go of the need to be something that they never will be, because we're never perfect. I, I used to think that Christina Lenhair, who uh, was a former abbess, who was the Tanto in that first practice period that I did, she's Swiss and was trained as a young Swiss woman to sew in a very Swiss way. And from a distance, her stitches looked perfect to me. And that was a source of shame. My, my stitches are very similar to Blanche's. And Blanche would say of, of her stitches is, my stitches are not an attractive stitch, but they're a strong stitch. 
<laughs> and I was struggling with the fact that mine are not attractive stitches because I wanted them to be like Christina Lindhair's. And then one day I was sitting right behind her at a Jukai that was one of these Jukais that went on for three hours. And so I was sitting right behind her and I had a chance to look really closely at her stitches. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. They're much better than mine, but they're not perfect stitches. And I know that that, because I asked her later on, that that is a source of disappointment for her. And she was a little embarrassed when I said that I've been sitting next to her, sitting behind her for three hours and was watching, looking at her, looking at her stitches. But for us, it's really strong here in this culture. And so we bring that with us into this practice, this feeling that we are not good enough, this feeling that uh, we're a disappointment to the world and to our parents, to our family, to our spouses, to our children. It's just constant in so many people. And so this is a great thing for us to practice with is accepting each stitch as sacred with its delusion and its wisdom. It's not just about accepting the imperfection. It's about seeing how it is that there is profound wisdom in seeing who it is that we truly are rather than getting caught up and only focusing on the negative, the fact that I can't, I can never reach this, this place of perfection that I've been trained to go after. So it's really a practice of cultivating uh, compassion for yourself. And that's that's hard. So I guess it's it's really twenty years now I've been selling it. still comes up. This is an ugly stitch. I did a Dharma talk once called the ugly stitch. <laughs> <laughs> All about this. <laughs> Thank you, Tom, for deepening my understanding of, of sewing. I I'm also trained as and I'm an alcoholic and uh, have a lot of perfectionist tendencies. And as you were speaking, I thought, well, all of those, like, that's exactly right. That's what happened to me when I sewed this rocket suit. And I, I'm not sure I was so, I could have been so articulate about what was happening. But what I appreciate about both doing this and taking your first walk into the door of whatever 12-step meeting it is, you have no idea what's going to happen. And that's the scary part. Because when I was drinking, it was miserable, but I knew what to expect. So I'd gotten kind of used to that kind of misery. But when I stopped, oh boy, <laughs> no idea. And it's the same with some rockasit. And I married and the Sangita was very generous in assisting me because I was in Port Townsend and we got online. But I sewed a lot by myself. And it was wonderful and it was terrible. Because I would look at the photographs of rockasis and see how 
what a shortfall <laughs> it was. Um, and Mary was not at all hounding me about having a perfect stitch. She, um, it was me that was doing it. And so I appreciate the opportunity. I, I have big resistance to doing this at all. And maybe it's because I know I need all of those things as I sew. And so to, the chant is really important because it brings me back to the purpose, which is just song. We bring up a very important point about uh, in, in, in shame that is constantly being cultivated, there's no surprises, so it's really about control. I don't have to deal with anything new, even though it's terrible. I'm ashamed all the time. I have low self-esteem, it's called the, the, the little cousin, the, the innocent cousin of shame is low self-esteem. I'm constantly cultivating low self-esteem. There's, there's nothing new for me to deal with. I don't have to deal with anything new. So it's a, it's a form of control, negative control, deformed control. It's a form of stability as well. It's deformed stability, but it's, a, it's another kind of stability. I always know where it is that I am. Uh, to give that up means to jump off the 100-foot pole, as we say. And that's where it is that our awareness opens up, truly opens up, when you're in free fall. What the hell is happening? How far before I hit the ground? <laughs> is this it? Uh, you're really, truly open. So. And, and, and there's something about uh, that I heard in, in your comment uh, being in Port Townsend and Mary helping you and Sandra helping you here. We, we are actually physically, I love the word sutra, which are the teachings, and suture, which is a thread which ties up a wound, and how it is that we are, we're actually physically sewing ourselves in in a living way into the lineage of this practice. And, and that's why when, when Mel said that thing about this is actually Buddha's robe, and I, I thought silence to myself, oh, come on, Mel. This is, this is Buddha's robe. Buddha's robe is rotten and gone to dust a long time ago. But I started to then spend time with that. We don't know the history of these rocks, but uh, it is suggested that um, there's two suggestions. One is that there's been various times in Buddhist uh, 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 different cultures where Buddhism has been present where there was suppression from the government and actually people were killed if they were Buddhists. And so there's one idea about how the Rakasu became a small robe because it's the five jo, and you're supposed to have a five, a seven, and a nine jo. Uh, and it used to be a skirt, it used to be worn as a skirt in India. Um, but one of the ideas is that it became small like that so that you could, you could hide it and still wear Buddha's robe right there. And so that made me think, well, if that's the case, then even someone, a 
at least one person has been sewing consistently on Buddha's robe ever since the time of the Buddha. You know, even during times of suppression, and even more so that people were, were secretly working on this robe. So is it possible that now I'm, I'm sewing myself physically into this lineage with this thread, taking refuge with each stitch, and I am connected deeply all the way back to the Buddha. Most of you know, Zach and Lane haven't seen yet the Kachanyaku, which is a, a bloodline, it's a document which traces you all, you're written down here, and up on the top is the Buddha, and right above you is your teacher, and it traces us all the way through our ancestors, all the way back to the Buddha. And to me, that is a, a bloodline, a, uh, a sutra which sews up my wound of shame and connects me with all beings throughout space and time. And at first, it's just an intellectual concept, but spend some time with it and it becomes a, something else. Okay. Go ahead. Well, it's up to you. Did you join Colin? No, no. Uh -uh. Okay, it's, a, it's an easy one, I think. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I know that it's a, something to do to have other people do a few stitches. Uh -huh. Maybe even Mary mentioned family members. That was easy. I'm, I'm thinking that must be part of being with the Sangha, but even beyond that, just with people. I don't know, could you say a few words about that? Sure. Sangha actually means a community of practitioners. And depending on what your idea of, practitioner, of, of practice is, that will be your community. So. If you never practice with your family anything at all, they're not a part of your Sangha. If, like most people, you practice deeply with your family <laughs> around various things, some of them negative, but not all of them, then that is your Sangha. We agree to stay in the world of suffering, in the, in the, the land of samsara, the cycle of birth and death, until all beings, all beings, can be awakened together. So, just get a concept of Sangha to begin with while you're stitching. It can be just you and Mary. Like Blanche said, I, you know, when, when she first explained to me, if you've never had anyone in your life who you totally trusted, and I immediately thought to myself, I've never had anyone I totally trusted, never then it's easy for you because you can imagine what it is that you, you would like. So that's where I started. That's how Sangha started for me. It's imagining, wishing that I had someone who I had total trust for. Imagining, what's that like? What could that be like to have total trust for someone? And then slowly, you can say happen. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to rend them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. 
Whereas its way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Karma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it.